0: Mankind and our ability to understand what's happening in the world and our basic emotions um, are still ruling us. I I am quite concerned by the fact that humanity is not moving as fast in terms of its understanding, intellectual and emotive, of how fast this world around us is changing. This
1: is the Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. how's it guys so it's not every day that you get to sit down with one of the most prominent personalities in south african business and for those of you who may be wondering who michael yordan is let me fill you in on just a few of the headlines Michael was the CEO to one of South Africa's largest banks, First National Bank or FNB with a customer base of 9 million people. And with more than 20 years experience in the financial services sector and nearly a decade at the helm of the bank, Michael oversaw the move away from traditional banking and led F to be named the world's most innovative bank in the 2012 Global Banking Innovation Awards held in Washington DC. He is the 2013 Sunday Times Business Leader Award winner and in 2014, he was awarded the CNBC, the All-Africa Business Leader of the Year Award. Today, he is the founder and CEO of Gray Capital, a private venture capital arm that invests in businesses or startups with high growth potential. I sat down with Michael to discuss everything from entrepreneurship to startups, the blockchain and its impact on the global financial system, and we even explore how to overcome fear when it comes to making big decisions in business. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. So without further ado, enter Michael Don. Michael Don, welcome to the Matt Brown Show.
0: Thank you. It's a privilege.
1: The privilege, I promise you, is all mine.
0: (laughs) I'm looking forward to this.
1: Cool. Me too. So for those of you who don't know, Michael is the former CEO of First National Bank, which is regarded as one of the world's most innovative banks. I'm not sure they still have that title. The world is changing. Um, but, uh, but what is the headline backstory? Like who is Michael, you're Don and why should we care?
0: I'm just actually a very ordinary guy. Um, and kind of nothing special about me, but the one thing I've realized in life is that you can be successful if you surround yourself with people who are better than you. So I've been fortunate to do that in my corporate career and what I've been doing the last five years or so is doing that with small businesses. So essentially it's backing great individuals or great teams, um, Usually, or you know, preferably when they also have great ideas. But the the key thing is not the idea; it's great people. And then it's amazing how successful you can be.
1: What I what I find really interesting about your story is that you've come from obviously a very successful corporate background, and now obviously with Monsey you're,
0: is it a, fair to say a VC arm, venture capital? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I do. So it's, it's startups. Um, I'm fortunate that some of them are probably not in startup mode anymore, but a little bit in scale up mode. But by and large, they um, are trying to make a better future, solving problems. Um, but none of them are profitable yet. So I suppose that's where the venture angle comes from.
1: Totally, exactly. Um, but it's interesting because it's similar to my background. Because I, you know, I was mentioning before we were on air about how um, you know I've failed a lot in business and obviously succeeded a couple times as well. Um, and. I think it's an interesting perspective that one has when you've been in corporate, you know how that machine works, but also you've been in the startup space and you understand how that works. Do you know what I mean? I mean, if you were to pick one thing, maybe there isn't one thing, maybe it's a set of things, but what would you say in your experience is the kind of key contributing factors or similarities between what makes a corporate tick versus what makes a startup tick? What would you say those things are?
0: So, so of course, uh, in one sense, they are completely different. In in a corporate, you um, have massive capital at your disposal. You have, you know, huge amount of customers and income and brand. And some of these, those things you take for granted, I suppose, just as you take that monthly paycheck for granted. Uh, And all of that is very different in, in a startup. I mean, for me, when I changed into this office, um, I couldn't go and ask an IT department to get me a PC or set it up. I had to go around and buy one and you know, once I had it set up, I realized I I'd never printer. So I had to walk out again and get a printer. And then after setting it up, I had to go out and buy you know paper and so on. So it's a completely different do-it-yourself type of attitude. But I suppose the one thing that is constant, and I want to come back to people, is if you surround yourself with great people, whether it's in a corporate or startup or in your personal life, that is the secret to success. So great leadership is most often not about the leader just making all the right decisions. It's an assembling the team and then enabling the best ideas to win and the right decisions to be made. They don't even have to come from you. So that doesn't change uh, regardless of the macro circumstances.
1: I suppose the one thing I would comment on there is, is perspective because if you're in a big corporate it's, and you want to innovate or you want to create a step change in the business, then I think to your point, like finding new people or what I would call new voices is important whether you're in you know 100 rand a hundred billion year company or whether you're in a hundred thousand rand a year company i think it's that perspective that can get you uh, the thing that you need in other words when you're stuck inside the bottle and you can't read the labels the perspective that's going to get you out into that new paradigm
0: what would you say about perspective I, I, of course you're right uh, new perspectives are really important the world outside is changing very fast and if you as a business be it small or large can't keep up with that rate of change falling behind and the bigger a business gets uh, the more difficult it often is just because there's inherent bureaucracy or processes or procedures to be followed and um, so new perspectives are critically important but um, perspectives aren't adequate uh, that's something you need but then you need to have that ability to implement or execute and that's always difficult in life it can be hard in a business because you have to jump through so many hoops and get so many approvals and sometimes things aren't silos and sometimes there's politics etc so my heroes in the corporate world have always been the people who can navigate that bureaucracy and despite that still get things done so I nearly want to say more important than just a new perspective is that ability to get things done and that, too, is generic. That, too, is applicable in the startup world. I think where startups have the advantages, you can make the decisions quicker, you can be more agile, and can be smaller. You can also admit your mistakes quicker without all the politics and kind of move on. But that ability to make things happen is equally tough and equally important in the startup world.
1: Decision making, right? And I would say the thing that's contributed to all my business failures has been poor decision making. Because either you don't have the right information, the perspective, or the right team, or the right product, or whatever whatever the reason is, is something there that you've made a poor decision based on, right? Um, how have what have you learned about yourself when it comes to making decisions that can ultimately, you know, impact a massive company like First National Bank? back when you were there versus when you're now looking f- long-term and you're saying startups, like, I don't know, not that it's in your portfolio, but, you know, Solicity, for instance, or something like that, that's blockchain-based or whatever it might be. Um, how do you approach decision-making? Like, is it an internal thing that you do? Is it Do you triangulate between three different people to get to the truth? How do you approach decision-making?
0: So I'd like to highlight two aspects of decision-making. The first one is that you should know, as much as possible about the topic. And you should try and know more than any of your competitors. And whether that is through reading and everything's available on the internet now or talking to people that know about this, often talking to people outside your normal sphere, you know, kind of experts on it. So just know more about the topic because the more you know, the more likely you are to make the correct decision. So that's the first part of it. The second bit, um, which I think is not stressed enough, is the ability to change your mind if new information should co- come onto the table uh, when I grew up, I kind of thought that the people who are right more often are the people who have studied something, learned everything about it, and you know kind of came up with their point of view. but you know as I grow older in life, I realized the ability to change your mind is probably far more important. Um, I think there's a saying about strong views weakly held uh, that's that 's what you should be so don 't be afraid to change your decision. If new things come to the table and you have to do so. So even if you're mid-implementation and it's highly uncomfortable to say the decision I used to make um, you know now needs to be changed, but have that flexibility of changing your point of view. Um, I once heard this quote, I don't know if he even wrote it down, but somebody said of Malcolm Gladwell that he said, if you still believe what you believed 10 years ago, you're quite likely a fossil. Um, and if you, if you truly examine your life, and you and you and you feel that you're still believing all the same things you did some time ago, uh, I, I would put it, you know, to that person that maybe they're not reading enough, or maybe they're not exposing themselves to other views than their own. So make decisions based on the best information possibly available, but always be flexible, um, thinking that you may be wrong.
1: Stay with us; we'll be right back. Yeah, it's um it's that saying, uh, I love quotes. I get a lot of quotes from doing these interviews, but one is um the smart man learns something new every day, but the wise man unlearns something new every day. To get to the truth because I think that's what it's about. We're all trying to seek the truth in whatever it is that we're doing individually but equally also in business. Um and it's hard to get to the truth. I think it's way harder than it ever was before to get to the truth. Um I mean what is your what is your advice to an entrepreneur who's watching us and listening to us right now about um, finding the truth in what you do as a person?
0: Finding the truth in what you do? Are you talking more about purpose? Or? Purpose, yeah.
1: Purpose and passion. Are those like defining qualities of a successful entrepreneur in your view?
0: So I suppose the nice thing about purpose is, is that there's a young generation out there that is far more driven by purpose than the old generation. Um, it's said that about half the people on earth uh, today are under 30 years of age and things like purpose and sustainability um, are far more important to them. So, so, so I think that's pretty cool. It means that you have a better reason to get out of bed in the mornings. It means that you're more fulfilled by what you do and it's not just about the money. And I think that for me would be the criteria also of successful entrepreneurs that they are not in the first instance motivated just by material things in the first instance, they are motivated by solving a problem by the true passion of saying, "I know a better way of doing things, a you know, better way of doing things than the way the world is currently doing it, and if I do it in this way, the world will also be a little bit better." And if you do that well enough, you know the money and all the other things will come naturally um, okay let's let's talk about
1: uh, a subject that I've been covering quite a lot um, recently, and many of my following will know is blockchain. Um And obviously, you know where I'm going to go with this, right? I guess you have a, an idea. I do, I do. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I mean, I know a lot of the guys that sit on, what's the consortium that are, are banks that are building their own blockchain?
0: It's, it's the R3 consortium. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but with Fazam, and another, it's it's pretty interesting. Yes, well,
0: Fazam recently resigned from that. Yes, cheese uh, word travels fast, there. Eh?
1: Yes, I knew before anyone else, even <laughs> you, by the way. <laughs> but um, let's talk about blockchain. Obviously, this is about the decentralisation of trust, and obviously, this um, it it threatens, I would say, to use a word loosely. You know, um, whether it does or not, it's open for debate. But the blockchain promises so much from a reimagining of banking. And the financial inclusion of the poor, um, universal basic income, all of these concepts, um, you know, prior to the blockchain, prior to 2008, prior to even two years ago, you know, weren't terms that were even relevant to a financial community or an emerging continent like Africa. I mean, you put out that tweet the other day. And that's actually how we, I was here. I remember you said, you know, um, what was it? Eight billion people are going to be connected to the internet? That's
0: right. That's right. In a couple of years' time.
1: So that represents massive inclusion, right, through connectivity. And if you have a blockchain-based financial services type play like Bank Zero, (laughs) um, you know, what does the blockchain promise in your view, like understanding financial services, traditional financial services? And I know that you're launching something called Bank Zero. And is it blockchain? Is it not blockchain? Like what is the blockchain promise?
0: All right, so Bank Zero, which we will hopefully launch towards the end of this year, towards the end of 2018, um, is going to lot, do, do lots of new things. It's going to be a mobile bank with a card. It's going to be um, attacking bank fees in South Africa, but it won't initially be built on blockchain. We are busy integrating with the South African payment system. It's sophisticated. It's well running. Um, so we think we can bring lots and lots of benefits to customers in this instance without blockchain. But Obviously, we remain open to all the possibilities it has in future. And I think particularly in terms of foreign exchange, which is uh, quite a difficult transaction, quite expensive, that would likely be the first application of of blockchain in in banking in South Africa. But in a broader context, um, blockchain is revolutionary. It could in time be bigger than the internet. In other words, the impact it would have um, on the world could be bigger than the internet even if it is built on kind of internet type of technology. Um, and the whole concept there of of um, not having to deal through centralized intermediaries is the thing that excites me the most. So it's not just banking. It could be anything from property transfers to, you know, the way that people insure themselves to a, a whole host of applications. So the way I look at it, though, is to say that The mere existence of an alternative to using a centralized intermediary is also not always adequate, Um, particularly if something is working fine right now. You know, people don't change their behaviors that easily. Um, And so let's let's just take the, the property transfer system in South Africa. It would take a concerted effort probably by the authorities to say we're going to put title deeds on blockchain before it works. And so the business models that are built on blockchain are not yet that well developed. The winners um, are, are also not that obvious. I'm not talking about the people who speculate on the currencies. I'm talking about two businesses built on the blockchain. It would be like identifying the potential of, let's say, mobile phones 15 years ago, but you still didn't know 15 years ago that Apple would be the one that wins. And and so it is in the blockchain world. It has massive, massive potential, but not not clear which the use cases, particularly in an emerging market like South Africa, is that, that are really going to do well. My interest in the blockchain specifically comes from banking and from its role as a currency. Um, so I like the idea that you can make transfers easily to other people, but also most importantly for free. Um, and I think it reemphasizes another thing in the world, which is that the ruling price of our era is likely to be free for all electronic things, for all dematerialized things. Um, and that in itself, I think, does ultimately threaten the banking system as we know it because right now they only have the power to charge you fees because you are forced to go through an intermediary. And when that all of that is decentralized, I think the, the power of making free um, transfers is, is inherently a, a very powerful thing.
1: Yeah. Are there banks... Some people would say in the media, like the banks are threatened. It's, it's this blockchain thing, the technology, not the speculation on price movements. and the they're fundamentally different things. But blockchain as a technology is going to threaten the existence of banks. Period. Would you agree? Yes or no?
0: I, I, in concept, of course it does, because it, it obviates the needs for central intermediary. You could argue it even um, threatens central banks, who are the current issuers of currency because now currency is issued in a completely different way it can either be mined or you know um, others just release all the currency uh, straight up front um, and it has the particular benefit that it's global at the same time um, the proportion of cryptocurrencies as a as a percentage of all currencies in the world is very small. And if you really just want to walk across the street and buy something, it's still not there. So it, it requires acceptance and broad acceptance. Now in the internet world, we speak of this phenomenon of the winner takes all. So Facebook has become the winner in social media, at least in the Western world. Now you could come up with a better Facebook, better functionality, um, also make it free, promise no advertising, but you won't move there because there's no one else there. Your mates aren't there. So you're going to hang on to the, the winner. Now that also happens with currencies and with payment systems. So you have to find a very specific use case where somebody said, I will change from the, my local national currency to another currency and I will start really using it uh, for the purposes that it's intended to. So, so my point I'm just making is you can absolutely completely theoretically see how it can threaten all of this. But I think what it's up against is a very powerful network effect. And that network effect is the one that the banks and the current payment systems already have. So it will take time. When we do reach a tipping point, then you can expect all these things to happen quite quickly. So it's the same way people go bankrupt and reverse, but it's slowly, 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 and then very suddenly.
1: I think there's a revolution in funding happening, interestingly. Um, it's actually, I'm doing a talk to um, a large FMCG brand and a health brand tomorrow, funnily enough, all about this blockchain thing. And one of the slides I have in there is about ICOs. So uh, last year in 2017, over $6 billion was raised through alternative funding vehicles. It's what I at <laughs> term to call what ICO slash token sales are. Let's stick with token sales. No one likes ICOs apparently, <laughs> although they're one in the same thing. Um, so this is a revolution of funding and to your point around use cases, there's a number of different types of tokens. You've got utility tokens and then security tokens. And I think just in my observations, I think it's, it's we're seeing a shift away from utility towards actual security. And again, this is interesting from a banking perspective. So what are your views on, on how value is fundamentally going to change through looking at it with a blockchain hat on? How do you see value fundamentally being shifted or changed um, from both a, I don't know, pick a sector from a corporate slash entrepreneur perspective? How's value going to change?
0: So if you go back in history and you look at the creation of something like the corporation, something that said you create a legal entity and it has its own limited liability. That was one of the major things that led to the development of economies and trade and so on, that it wasn't just always one individual behind it, but that people could come together and create something that they invented, which is the corporation. Um, So it had a massive impact. Now, tokens could have exactly the same type of thing. I mean, we've until now had basic categories like bonds, which give you interest rates, and equity, which give you a share of the profit. But Why could you not have something in the middle and something completely in between? And this is where all these tokens become interesting and where blockchain makes them more interesting is that you can now trade them without needing a centralized exchange. So again, conceptually, I think it's a very interesting uh, 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 use case and, and something that could take the economy forward. At the same time, sitting here today, March 2018, I see a lot of them that are just a mad rush to monetize. Uh, somewhat insatiable appetite out of people to speculate. Um, so I would just say that there are good ones and there are bad ones. And to anyone out there, before you just buy a token or ICO on any company, do your own work, do your own research, see what that gives you access to. Um, because I, I, I unfortunately think there are, um, and I, I, say this with, with reservation and caution, caution. There are more bad ones than good ones out there. Certainly the ones that I've seen. So be careful. Some of them will be wildly successful. And others are going to lose their pants.
1: I think there's so much scamminess in terms of the narrative. You know, um, BitConnect, you know, uh, that guy on stage at that conference, I'll, I'll put the video up in the show notes, but basically jumps on stage and it's like BitConnect. And the guy's like going crazy. And people are like, woo, you know, and the whole thing just blew up. And that was a $2 billion play. You know, EOS is another one. You know, um, they're also a $2 billion valuation, uh, token. Um, and it's, and it's was literally in the Wall Street Journal. It was like, um, this EOS will produce software. It's designed to produce software, but it won't ever sell any. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but where's the value then? And that's the interesting thing because I think we're trying to find. For me, I think there's a fragmentation of value that's coming through the blockchain. And people are trying to seek out where this value is going to sit. And no ones we've been playing around with it. It's like I like to use the saying, like the internet's had sex and had the blockchain and Bitcoin. And we're still trying to work out what the hell to do with it. You know, because it's like 1994 HTML all over again. You know, we haven't built Amazon on top of the blockchain. It's coming, but it's not
0: there yet. Do you know what I mean? What would you say yeah, that? So, so exactly right. I think you spoke about it earlier. It's still unclear who the winners are going to be. You know, we've created a foundational infrastructure, but, you know, it, it may be that it's not the current cryptocurrencies. It may not even be blockchain. It could be Tangle. I mean, there are new versions of the blockchain coming up. For me, what is really interesting is the way that tech is moving faster and faster and humanity in its broad definition is actually not keeping pace. And what I mean with that is that Tech is, as we know, subject to Moore's law. Its capacity doubles roughly every two years or so. And there's some wild, wild forecast of where that uh, could take us in terms of artificial intelligence and robotics, uh, et-, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But mankind and our ability to understand what's happening in the world and our basic emotions um, are still ruling us. Um, and So what you're talking about, these ICOs and the tokens, that's good old fear and greed. You know, the basic things that we had 2,000 years ago, and they're still with us. So I I am quite concerned by the fact that humanity is not moving as fast in terms of its understanding, intellectual, and emotive of how fast this world around us is changing.
1: Yeah, it's FUD and FOMO. So if you're trading, it's the the fear of missing out on the new token sale, whether that might be a Telegram you know, launch or whatever this, the, the case might be. And then from a FUD perspective, while it's still relevant in the trading space, FUD's almost like, what is the banking of the system of the future going to look like? You know, what is know your customer or KYC going to be like in the future or in the next, you know what I mean? And that's all FUD. And when you put those two things together, it says I just see this massive status quo of fear. Like we fear the things that we don't know, that we fear the things that we can't control. Uh We fear the not having the right information to make the right decisions as executives and um and as entrepreneurs business owners and more importantly to your point as people i mean how do you approach fear and you know looking at this exponentially changing world like what is your advice around fear like
0: what what should we do what shouldn't we do so first of all i think you're completely right that fud and fomo are the fear and greed of our time that's you know the modern version but it's Going straight back to basic behavioral biases, basic emotional bents that that we as human beings have had. So, okay, how do I um, think about fear? I think one should um, embrace fear and take more risks. Okay, now again, that doesn't mean stupid risks, but I think the quality of one's life is directly correlated with the amount of risks that you're willing to take. So I'd much rather um, involve myself with small startups, which in theory are high risk. But what I like about them is whether they succeed or not will depend on the individual and the team and the idea and the implementation track record. And I can even assist a bit there. And they're completely independent on whether, you know, GDP growth collapses or goes up another 5%. So these things are controllable uh, in, in your universe. So it's one of those bizarre things where it seems to be more risky. People are more afraid of putting their money in startups. But for me, I think it's the other way around is uh, by embracing that fear, but doing it in a smart way, you will over time improve the quality of, in this case, financial performance.
1: Just to, just to stay on fear for a bit. How, how should you, I and mean, when you say like embrace fear, like, how does one do that i mean is it just simply to stop resisting and acknowledging the fact that you're fearful and, and acting and pushing through despite that you know acknowledgement like how do you how, when you say like how do we embrace fear so that you can do whatever you want to do like how do we embrace it like is it? Is are there like meditation
0: practices that you do or look i i say this because i truly believe it um you know, one should embrace fear, that by no means says I'm good at it. There are many girls out there that I would have loved to have talked to, but I just, you know, was too afraid. I didn't have the self-confidence to go and do it. There were investments out there that I I should have taken. There are life decisions that, you know, I I should have done. So I'm I'm really not sitting here saying I'm that good at it in all instances, but I do know that it's true that you should say yes more often and that you you should worry far less about failure which I think, unfortunately, is the thing that, that we do in South Africa. We're so worried about what other people think about us. Um, the nice thing about embracing fear, though, is that you do get rewarded for it in the long term. Um, so I suppose what you must just do is you know, kind of focus on the end goal, focus on those experiences, focus on the rewards, and then fear becomes worthwhile. Just like um, it's tough to go to the gym or to go for a long run, but you do feel much better for the whole day afterwards. So, So rather have the... Pain upfront and the reward for it the other way around. Um, unfortunately, most of mankind, most of humanity, we kind of want to do it the other way around. You know, you want to have a good time now, even if you pay for it tomorrow. You know, you have too much wine tonight, and tomorrow you'll, you'll have the hangover. So, exercise is exactly the other way around. You know, pain first, then a good time, and and the same with uh, kind of the financial risk if you take it smartly so let's talk about risk a bit more
1: i mean uh, richard branson is famous for saying like you know when he how, I mean, for instance how do you own 300 different businesses do you know what i mean tony robbins has 36 different big businesses you know these are billionaires through and through um and their their whole business their whole mantra is not their entire mantra but a large portion of it the narrative is about risk so richard branson will say something like you know um when I look to invest or make a big decision, put a bit, you know, 100 million into a company, whatever that might be, for him, it's probably a bit more. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's all about for him protecting the downside. Uh, is that an approach that you would agree with?
0: Well, you know, I come from a banking background where um, half your balance sheet is loans. And in the credit or banking business, protecting your downside is incredibly important because. Your margins are one or two or three percent, which means you can only make one or two or three out of a hundred errors. Um, if if the loan is unsecured and that wipes out all the profit. So banking is all about protecting the downside. I would argue venture capital is the other way around. It's all about focusing on the winners and it's understanding you're going to have many failures. You know, the rule of thumb is out of kind of 10 venture capital investments, um, Three or four, five are not even going to make it. Two or three will be okay, um, and if you're lucky, you're going to have two, maybe three that outperform so completely that you know pays for the rest of the portfolio. So I don't think it's about the downside, even though that is how most of us are programmed. It really is about looking at the upside. Having said that, you said Branson has hundreds of companies. I didn't know that, but if he if he does that, he diversifies, and that is actually a, quite a smart risk management technique. Now clearly, I'm in a privileged position as a portfolio investor that I can spread my risk like that I think we have to acknowledge that most entrepreneurs out there don't have that privilege they have one business and they've got to make that one business work. Failure is tough you know, you want to avoid it at all cost. However, my message out there to any entrepreneur there would be that if you gave it your all and it didn't work, I think you're far richer as a person and you are probably in far better shape to try the next one and you should, don't give up
1: Failure is such a Great point of departure here because I think in South African culture, failure is just not sexy. You know, I don't know whether it's because when the springboks lose, we'll go into depression (laughs) or something to that effect. I mean, why? And I I love failure. Like for me, like if I haven't failed today, like the fact that this isn't being broadcast like right now, you know, uh, because of whatever the reasoning was, you know, that for me is a failure. And so in any day, if I haven't failed, like I haven't had a good day, But yet, if I speak, well, when I speak to entrepreneurs, it's like failure is just not cool. It's the thing that you sweep under the carpet. You know, it's not the thing that you talk about because we just want to talk about Porsches and Ferraris and how we landed that big deal. Like, why isn't failure sexy? And how should entrepreneurs think about failure?
0: You know, I I think I'm going to answer it in a little bit more nuanced. I I, I don't think failure is sexy and I don't think failure is cool. I think failure hurts and you want to avoid it at all costs. so, so I don't think we should make failure in itself cool. However, when people fail and they did so valiantly and they did so cleverly and they did so with their character intact, you learn so much out of it that it can actually be a positive experience. So, so it's just a slightly more nuanced wording of failure. And I think where we are wrong is then in bringing that judgment to the failure. So, if someone has failed and has gone through all those pain experiences that I highlighted already... Um You know, we as society and other people just shouldn 't criticize and judge or think that that is a good indicator of future performance. It could be that if that person learnt about it um, it it 's actually a much better indicator that they 're going to do well in future because they may not be repeating those same type of mistakes so so, so i'm not i 'm saying failure isn 't cool but but our approach to that still has been too negative, um particularly in judging people from the outside um failure. Uh, Failing if you're a youngster and you fail at a startup two years out of varsity, I promise you that you've learned more in those two years than any of your colleagues who got a paying job uh, and now suddenly is a junior in some other big firm wherever it is in the world. Uh, You've you've grown ten times more as an individual. That's such a great point. I think because success doesn't really teach you too much. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yay, I've succeeded. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? No, that's exactly right. I mean, in, in fact, there's this concept of the narrative fallacy that if you tell the stories of somebody who's become very successful, you kind of look at all the points in their life and it kind of looks like every step was logical and would inevitably have led to success. And we like those type of stories. Um, and then even we as individuals underestimate the role of luck in that journey. Um, you know, if, 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 if most successful people are truly honest – they will tell you that there were a couple of key points in the entire journey where luck played an incredibly important role so um uh, so one doesn 't tend to learn that much from success because you even tell yourself the story. this narrative fallacy is even self reinforcing That You say, "I got there because I worked so hard and because of the sacrifices I made and the risks I took etc um and you need to be careful to also say that there, was, there may have been a lot of luck involved.
1: I have had that discussion quite a few times on the show about luck because it's almost as if you just stay in the game long enough, at some point something's going to happen. Do you know what I mean? And it's almost like, I know it's very reductionist, but it's almost like your job as a startup founder is to just stay in the game for as long as possible. And even when like, you're in the trenches taking grenades – And you feel like giving up and people are telling you that your business is going to fail. Like you just stay the course, you know, but this is an interesting dilemma that I've had personally, and I'm sure that you'll be able to relate to is that when you're in the, in the trenches taking grenades and you feel like quitting, like and the world feels like it's stacked against you and you feel like your life's going to end, right? Not just your business. Like you feel like all consuming doubts, FUD. (laughs) Um, Like, and and then you have that choice of whether to either pivot your business or to quit.
0: What is your advice to that person? Gee, this is such a tough topic because generic answers aren't always helpful. I would definitely agree with the concept that endurance is incredibly important, just like it is in sport. You know, you've got to go into a certain very uncomfortable uh, level for your body or for your business. Um, and you've got to be able to endure. That's one way that makes you better than the competition out there. Um, and most of the startups just take longer than people think. You know, you, you start it in a very optimistic, very naive way. And then uh, at some stage in your journey, it's going to be really dark. You're going to be in the depths of despair and so on. And that's where you sometimes need to have the endurance to pull through. At the same time, though, you need to have the flexibility to sometimes admit to yourself this is wrong, that either the idea or the execution or the pricing or the product or the team members are wrong. And then you need to be flexible enough to uh, to make those type of decisions. That's what makes a generic answer quite difficult. Sometimes you've got to pivot. Sometimes you've got to close the company. You know, there are also a lot of zombie companies out there that uh, also shouldn't have the existence, you know, rather kind of pack it up uh, and, and start again. So it's a strange mixture of sometimes saying, you know, I'm going to continue doing this come what may but at the same time having that flexibility just to be realistic um about the prospects of the business
1: yeah you got to have some sense no one's going to help you if you're stupid do you know what i mean uh <laughs> let's be <laughs> honest like you have to have some sense um the other thing uh, that i've learned and just to tell me if you agree or not is that um when you're there it's like no spreadsheets met the reality of the markets, especially in startups. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I love these accelerators and incubators where they go, please give me your three to five year projections. Like what that for me is almost like I'm not going to work with you because you clearly, you're either just trying to see whether I can work out what those might be, <laughs> um, but but they have no value because fundamentally it's like, I mean, I've met with tons of VCs, just as I mentioned, met with Kiet, um for, for lunch on Monday um, from Knife Capital, and it was this, it was a similar thing. It's like, I know you guys have different criteria, like you have to have some revenue and all that kind of cool stuff, but it's for me the point I'm trying to make here is don't get stuck on the numbers. Like if you get in market, because unless you're in market getting feedback from from the person or the customers or the, cons- the community that you're trying to serve – there's no way that you're going to get to product market fit because you're not in market. So, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a
0: chicken before the egg thing. I mean, what, do you, what would you say to that? Gee, I remember when I came up with my first business plan, this was in a corporate, and I was very confident to the figures and so, someone in the meeting that had to evaluate, evaluate, I said the same thing. He said, look, you're never going to even reach your low-case scenario. And I remember at the time, I was like a little bit offended by this. I thought, you know, we've put a lot of thought into this. We're very confident of this. I'll show you. As it turned out, we did underperform. Eventually, the business did very, very well. But, you know, it underperformed initially our, our most conservative um, estimations of it. And now I'm on the other side of the table. I get to look at a lot of businesses. And unfortunately, the observation is still true. You know, if people just start off with nothing, what they can put in that Excel spreadsheet is very patient. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it doesn't come through. I have to then say that how pe- individuals then react you know, when the reality is not the same as the expectation. That is like the real test of of an entrepreneur. I also think that there's value in doing the Excel spreadsheets, you know, because it's a mental exercise where you apply your assumptions and the right ones then can be adapted as you go along. So I certainly don't think the answer is to throw away all spreadsheets. No. Um, it certainly is just to have them and then, as I say, then as life changes, then kind of adapt them and, and see if you still have good business prospects.
1: Is the business plan dead,
0: yes or no? The the business plan is, again, valuable in terms of having to write down exactly what your idea is, how you're going to implement it, who's going to do it, and obviously it incorporates financial models. Um, I I dare say though that when the right investors make their decisions, obviously they've read the business plan and they've asked lots of questions about it and they've interrogated it, but the right decisions ultimately aren't made based on the business plan, but on the individuals that are, you know, presenting it and are going to implement it. I have this great quote, I don't know who came up with it, that says, In the end you back surfers, not the waves. So it's about the individual and how they're going to ride that wave rather than kind of knowing everything about the wave. The jockey and the horse. Yeah, there we go. But I think surfer and wave just sounds cooler.
1: It's much cooler. <laughs>
0: I'm switching over.
1: <laughs> um, cool. Just uh, a couple more questions for you. Let's talk about the surfer. What do you look for in a surfer? Let's just say you were, um, I was here. I've now given you my three to five year forecast. <laughs> probably just 12 months in my case Uh, um, or whatever the story is i mean if you were looking at me as a potential startup to invest in what would you be looking for in terms of my personality character traits like what is it in the surfer that you look for
0: so i'm going to give you a couple of answers but before that uh, kind of a caution and that is some of these things can be gamed. So if you say I'm looking for this and this and this, then somebody will kind of say, okay, that's how I've got to be when I meet the type of person. So, you know, you're really looking for these things kind of in an authentic way. You know, where people really are like that. So first of all, where I've never invested, and I, I think, again, some of the top venture capital investors in the world haven't invested, is somebody comes and pitches in a suit. Suits are just, that's a no-no, Okay. The second one is a business where people have put a high salary in for themselves. Now, the metrics here are interesting. It doesn't mean that if you put in a low salary, you will succeed with a small business. But uh, but it's nearly universal that if you start a business and you put in very high costs up front, you won't make it okay so it's kind of like a counter indicator so (laughs) don't come in suits and don't don't start a business plan trying to you know live the high life of it you know if anything there's something to be said for frugality and and leanness so the most successful entrepreneurs i find are a little bit rebellious okay and they don't accept the world as they see it and they found something in the world that frustrates them, really irritates them so much that they came up with a solution towards it and they're now hell-bent on proving that the way that they're going to solve this problem is the right way of solving it. They're typically well-read, not just in their own topic. They live in the future, so they know a little bit about all the other things that are happening. So somebody may be an expert on solar, but ask them about self-driving cars or artificial intelligence and they will surprise you with their answers because they live in the future and, and they read a lot about it. They need to have the ability to sell. And it's, the sell is multifaceted. It's kind of sell to the investor because they need funds, sell to customers because they need to sell their products, but actually also sell to get the right people to join them. You know, they have to persuade people to say, like, join this team. You know, it's very uncertain. Uh, and that, you know, that's a very important, shall we call it, the interpersonal skill, to be persuasive enough that that great people want to come and join you. Um so, of course, there are many others, you know, people need to have endurance and they need to have a track record of implementation that, that helps a, a hell of a lot. Um, but it's that thing of somebody who thinks they can change the universe just a little bit, make the world just a little bit better. Um, is a little bit rebellious, which I don't mind at all. That sometimes makes them just a little bit wacky. They're not kind of the ordinary ty- type of person. Um, and the nice thing is that it's fun working with people like that. You get energy from from people who are just like a little bit rebellious and want to prove a point.
1: Great stuff. Last question for you. Why do you do what you do? Like you mentioned getting out of bed in the morning. Like why do you, what's the reason
0: that you get out of bed in the morning? So I, I didn't formalize this well enough when I started. been when after three years I look back at the investments that I'd made, I realized that all of them are small initial attempts to solve some of the bigger problems that I see in South Africa. Um so unemployment, for example, I think is a big problem. So I've got an investment in a coding academy codex that takes high potential, underprivileged kids teaches them for a year and then they get white collar jobs. Now it's going to be 50 this year, but there's no reason it can't be 500 or 5,000. That's my attempt at, at uh, solving education or, I think we're burning fossil fuels. So I'm involved in Bright Black, which is a solar company and installing many megawatts of solar power. I think education is um very, very bad in South Africa. We regularly come last um, in all these global type of rankings. So I've got a couple of educational investments from Snaplify, which provides textbooks in electronic format so they don't get lost on the road to a Montessori type of school. Um, so there we go. There's education. And so one by one, data costs are too high. Rain will, you know, pretty soon launch its mobile offering to the market. We're going to make data affordable and fast, and not have any, any of these funny pricing practices. So one by one, each of these solve a big problem in South Africa. Now I get a kick out of that. I happen to believe that startups are the best way of solving problems in the world. That doesn't mean governments can't do a lot. They can. Doesn't mean big corporates can't, you know, can't do a lot. Of course they can, but they have um, other priorities as well. You know big corporations you know that half yearly report to to investors is is still the most important thing but if you're a startup and you're truly obsessed with solving it you can grow much bigger pretty quickly and and you can solve those problems so what gets me excited is working with interesting people who also see these problems find out uh, or think that they have a way of solving it and then if i can back those people and in the process make the world a a little bit better uh, that gets me up in the mornings
1: michael udon thank you for being on the map Brown show How's it, guys? And don't forget, if you'd like access to the video recordings of these interviews, like the one you've just heard, you can get that right now on our YouTube channel. All you need to do is search for Matt Brown Show or simply join our Facebook page by searching Matt Brown Media or join the conversation at Twitter at MattBrownZA. <laughs> so
0: till next time. Matt Brown, Matt, Brown, Matt Brown. Listen to the
1: Matt Brown Show. This is the Mac Brown Show. Haiku went from a two percent share of voice globally to an eleven percent share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.